0: This is Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. A couple of years ago here on Conducting Business, we told you about a National Endowment for the Arts survey on public participation in the arts. It drew a mixed picture of the health of the arts, including some rather steep declines in attendance for certain disciplines. That study didn't get into the motivations behind the numbers, but last week the NEA gave some deeper context with three new reports – including one that looked at why audiences participate in arts activities and why they don't. In a moment, we'll hear about what happened when a major orchestra played in a nightclub. But with us first is Sunil Iyengar, the NEA's Director of Research and Analysis. Welcome.
1: Hi, good to be here.
0: The NEA General Social Study looked at the kinds of barriers to people's attendance at arts events and among other things it found that lack of free time, lack of accessibility and lack of having someone to go with ranked highest as barriers. Was any of that a surprise?
1: I think off the face of it, we may have expected time, lack of time to be frequently cited as a reason for people not going. But of course, that blanket answer doesn't tell us a lot. So to do further analyses, which is what our report did, uh, we dug deeper into what are others, some of the other characteristics of these people who said they, they lacked time to go to an event. And it turns out, first of all, that about 31 million adults, which is roughly 13% of the U.S. adult population, wanted to go to an event in the last year, but for some reason chose not to. So taking that 13% as a whole, uh, we went deeper and we found that those people who said they lacked time, a great proportion of them, we found out that they were parents, young parents, or parents of kids six and younger. So we tend to believe that a lot of it has to do with, in fact, parenting and having um, maybe not family-friendly venues for these kids or for these young parents who want to go to these events. Because, again, they were a high share of the adults who said they lacked time. That was one uh, interesting dimension around time. Around access, uh, some of these adults were are older Americans, those who may have disabilities or health issues. But even among those who did not necessarily seem to be older or have those uh, issues, you know, we saw, again, 31 percent of those people who wanted to go to an event but said they couldn't go said it was lack of access to the event. So, again, that tells
0: – Was that you know, monetary or just – there was nothing where they were. They
1: couldn't get to the location specifically. Mm-hmm. And that tells you something about the options that perhaps need to be built in to uh, allowing more Americans to uh, experience those venues and those arts events more directly, uh, whether it's through you know, something like busing routes in some cases have been done uh, to you know, look at different shuttles or ways to get people to the event on time or to uh, you know, perhaps think about bringing the arts to their doorstep. I will say that a very high share of adults said that the reason they chose to go to an arts event, if they went to a live performing arts or visual arts event in the last year, uh, was because of the location itself. So the venue seems to be an attraction in many of these cases, particularly for museum goers.
0: And the lack of somebody to go with, that means we just need to have a rent a concert going partner service or? Uh, Well, I think motivate people to go by themselves. (laughs) Well, I think a lot
1: of arts organizations are looking into ways to bring, uh, you know, create opportunities for socialization.
0: Crowdsourcing or, or, you know, online and go or or
1: create social events. Uh Uh, You know, uh, after a a performance, there might be a, uh, you know, a kind of cocktail hour or something or, or prior to it, there might be a run up event. Um, And I think those are ways to kind of get more people engaged and involved and create space for these people to interact. And certainly museums are doing this as well. So, yes, you're right. About 73% of people who went to an event uh, did so primarily to socialize. And that was something we were not expecting to see. That appetite for mingling and mixing with people seems to be bound up with arts participation in general. And I think that's something that speaks well to the civic dimension of arts participation.
0: One really interesting wrinkle you found that Americans who consider themselves in the upper or middle class were much more likely to have gone to some artistic presentation in the past year than those who self-identify as lower or working class, regardless of how much money they actually make.
1: Yes, and isn't that interesting? There's a clear discrepancy in terms of what people are actually earning and where they rank objectively within a certain class and their, their own kind of uh, assertion of what class they belong to. And that's, that's a general uh, interesting sociological phenomenon, but when it's applied to the arts, what we find here is that when you look at people who said they saw themselves in the lower class or in the working class, you actually see higher shares of those groups who didn't attend but wanted to attend an arts event. Then you so what see, was
0: keeping them from going?
1: Well, in many in those particular cases, often it was uh, not only factors such as accessibility to the event or cost, but in fact, it seems in the results that no, having no one to go with played a bigger role among those that group of Americans than it did for some of the people in the higher socioeconomic strata.
0: With people who identified themselves as lower or working class, you said a lot of them wanted to go to the arts. What was their motivation for wanting to go if it wasn't some perceived good taste factor.
1: Right, and again, we can't paint this with two broad strokes, but I think based from the, on the data itself, it, look, it seems as if uh, wanting to learn new things uh, was a significant value, value for proposition for those people in the lower working classes or people who associated themselves with lower working classes, regardless of income. Um, but that was also true of people who genuinely had lower income, too. They, wanted, they, they said they wanted to learn something new as a much bigger uh, motivation than, interestingly enough, of those who were, had higher education or higher income or who saw themselves as higher education or higher income. And also wanting to um, experience cultural heritage, was a big value, wanting to support community. Uh, these were values that seemed a little more important for those in the lower socio- socioeconomic strata, whether they identified themselves as such or were objectively discerned as such.
0: Now, with all this talk about access, were there any studies of organizations that thought outside the concert hall box or museum box and took their art to non-traditional spaces, or as you said, to people's doorsteps? Well, this
1: study did not focus on what the venues specifically were. However, we have ample data from one of the reports we released this week or last week, which is really about how people engage in the arts and what do they do and how many people and so forth. And that data is collected through the U.S. Census Bureau. And we have been asking for the last few years questions about venues. And so we we do see a great deal of what we might term informal arts participation, informal arts attendance, rather. Uh, where you're seeing high percentages of Americans going to art exhibits, r- regardless of whether they're in, you know, museums or galleries, uh, or who go to see performances, music, dance, and theater performances in uh, relig- religious institutions, you know, or in uh, in schools and in other neighborhood venues, um, including bars, nightclubs, restaurants, what have you. So we're starting to be able to collect this wealth of information that I think is finally properly putting arts participation in perspective and letting people see the enormity of it, the scale of it, and how it, how it affects so many different spheres of activity. And that's part of the purpose of collecting these data is to really understand how integral the arts are, but to also see where we can, as a public agency, help to foster more engagement.
0: Well, and looking towards that next step, how do you see all of this as being useful for arts presenters or arts advocates to ultimately put butts in seats or people in museums? Well, there are two or three
1: overarching findings that I think will help them uh, achieve those goals. So, for example, some of the things we talked about in terms of family-friendly fen- venues, uh, the, the, the quest for learning more, uh, learning new things, experiencing the, uh, the, the site, the location of the arts itself, Uh, as as its own reason for going, socialization, these kinds of things can be opportunities to build more engagement. But also another thing is we found a lot of engagement, about 71% of Americans went online or did some kind of arts engagement activity in the last year. So if somehow that cohort, if you will, using research terms, can be leveraged or brought into the the, the attendance group, uh, I think there's a lot of potential cross benefit there. And we've seen, in fact, that Americans who engage with the arts through media are two to three times as likely as those who don't to attend arts events. So I think the two are, cl- are closely correlated. And finally, uh, we do have a third report, which is about the economics of this whole enterprise and the fact that the arts itself account for something like $700 billion within the gross domestic products. So what that tells us is that all of this engagement has an economic dimension And, you know, it is directly linked to job creation, about 4.7 million jobs in terms of arts and cultural workers. And there's also a ripple effect, which the study shows in terms of new jobs created, about 60 for every 100 jobs created from new uh, demand in the arts. So I think that's certainly encouraging.
0: But there is one slight bit of discouraging news to all of this. The bottom line, that attendance at classical music, jazz, theater, and ballet – is down. In 2012, 33% of American adults attended arts events, which was down from 39% 10 years ago. Should we be worried? Well, I think actually uh, that is correct,
1: that there has been a decline in those particular art forms, in attendance for those art forms over time. But I think there is a bigger message in terms of um, three-fourths of Americans, as I said, using other means to view or listen to art, specifically in this case, electronic and digital media. We also see creation and personal creation of art and performance of art occurring at very high levels. More than 40% of adults did some kind of creative activity through the arts. And also people learning in the arts. One of the silver linings was that more adults seem to have had arts education in their lives than in years past. So I think this tells us that there is some kind of uh, higher level of engagement that could be occurring in other modes of participation, not necessarily for those particular art forms in those particular ways. I do hope, though, that people will understand and that we can find ways to allow those numbers to grow for all those great art forms you just
0: mentioned. Well, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Sunil Iyengar is the NEA's Director of Research and Analysis. We just heard about some of the factors that the NEA found that kept people from buying tickets to concerts. Now let's look at how one orchestra tried to make the concert experience more welcoming. Earlier this month, the National Symphony played to a packed nightclub in Washington, D.C. and totally rocked the joint, at least according to our next guest. Greg Sando is a music consultant, a faculty member at Juilliard, and the author of a blog at artsjournal.com. Welcome, Greg.
2: Thank you, Naomi. Glad to be here.
0: So 2,000 people turned out for the National Symphony event. Was the orchestra able to walk that fine line of freshening up the experience without sort of pandering?
2: Yes, I thought they managed exactly that. They played, let's say, half the program was classical selections. The Candide Overture, something from Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet, and Killer Choice, the uh, Stalin movement from the Shostakovich Tenth Symphony, which uh, really rocks as a piece of classical music. And the crowd cheered it all. But then they had three soloists representing music with a beat, uh, a rapper who does human beatbox stuff, a DJ, and an extraordinary electric cellist. And they contrived pieces that the orchestra played along with, and they did their kind of music. And, and you, you know what the great moment was, Naomi? Mm-hmm. The electric cellist named Witold de Liebing did a piece based on the prelude to the first Bach cello suite, the G major. And when it came to a very notable rising passage that's right out of Bach, the crowd started shouting, and their shouts rose with the music. So you could tell they were really, really into this.
0: What inspired this concert to begin with?
2: Well, the the National Symphony has a program called the NSO in Your Neighborhood, so they like going outside the Kennedy Center. I'm not sure that they have totally strategized what the purpose of it is, but they had the idea of going to a nightclub. They picked a place that holds 3,000 people, the tickets were free, but they had to shut it off after 2000 because they were afraid of getting mobbed, though so, they were already. And I think, like everybody, they are looking to do something new to engage a new audience. I was interested that when my wife, Ann Majed, whom I know you've had on this program a number of times, when she wrote about it, she quoted Deborah Rutter, formerly of the Chicago Symphony, who now runs the Kennedy Center, and Deborah said in the plainest of language, that things had to change in order to engage a new audience.
0: Were tickets for this concert less expensive than the usual hall?
2: You know, I believe they were free.
0: No wonder you can always get a good audience for free. (laughs)
2: Well, you can, but maybe 2,000 people. It was actually a triumph for Patty O'Kelly, the orchestra's PR person, who had never done the kinds of things you need to get this kind of new young audience. And she went way outside her normal comfort zone, and she aced it. So free or not, you have to get them out.
0: A lot of times with these concerts, there's sort of a thought that, okay, they may not actually convert these club goers to patrons in the concert hall and build loyalty. Do you think that is an issue?
2: Yes, I do think it's an issue, and I think it's an issue that's best dealt with by just letting it be. This is probably an audience that will not come to the Kennedy Center, which has problems Many concert halls don't have. It's really deliberately placed out of the way in Washington, so it's not easy to get to. There's no public transportation.
0: So then, if all right, these are people who are coming to a club for free. How do you get, how do you, as they say, monetize this? How do you get these people to become supporters of the symphony, which does not exist for free?
2: This is something everybody is going to be working out as we keep moving into the future. I think probably what happens is that the orchestra does more and more events of this sort. They begin charging for them. They try to develop loyalty. They perhaps have memberships. They try to get people to donate money. And maybe, Naomi, although this is scary for a lot of people in our field, the Kennedy Center concerts become more like this.
0: Well, you mentioned that the concert featured very short pieces, the Candide Overture, one movement of Shostakovich Ten, a movement from Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet. Do you think that the people in the club would have reacted differently if they'd gotten, say, the entire Shostakovich Ten or all of Romeo and Juliet?
2: Oh, for sure. That's not the kind of thing they're into as yet. Once they become interested in the orchestra, I think it's a completely different story. I've seen... New, young audiences really happily listen to longer pieces, and I've heard of it happening. It's a matter of having them interested in the first place, then giving a killer performance, and maybe talking to them. And you say, this is a long piece. It has four movements. Here's what happens. I think people are really willing to go there with you, but you have to have them interested in the first place. You have to be talking their language already.
0: So what were the orchestra musicians wearing for this gig?
2: I don't recall. It might have been jackets and ties for the men and the equivalent on the way to formality from the women.
0: Do you think orchestras need to pay attention to what they're wearing to make it less off-putting for people who might not be...
2: Oh, yeah. What, What presently we see is out of some 1910 movie about New Year's in Vienna... Or maybe what the butler wears if there's a rich family in a 1930s boofy. I think if an orchestra dressed like the Northern Sinfonia in Newcastle, in which is Britain, they just wear black, they don't wear jackets. The men, they wear open neck black shirts and black pants. Looks very spiffy. Or even better, Naomi, the student orchestra at the University of Maryland in College Park outside DC. They wear informal plaque, and for each concert, they pick an an accessory for each concert, they pick a color to accessorize with tuned to the music. I love that. It's kind of my favorite new dress idea.
0: The recent NEA report found that people who considered themselves working class self-described didn't attend classical music events as much. Was the nightclub audience that you saw a more diverse crowd?
2: No, it was, to judge from the looks of it, kind of upscale white kids a little bit hip. It was younger, but I imagine basically as well-educated as the symphony crowd. To get racial diversity, ethnic diversity, social class diversity, that's a whole different story.
0: Now, you're speaking to us from Juilliard, where you teach the class Classical Music in an Age of Pop. What do your students think of the idea, your students who are training, presumably, to play in orchestras and things like that, what do they think of taking the orchestra to a club?
2: Well, many of them are already doing stuff in clubs themselves, maybe in pop music, alongside their classical music things. So it seems pretty natural. But I'll tell you, I always begin... semester by asking them why they're taking the course and every single one of them said we have to make sure there's an audience in the future we're losing the audience we have so we have to figure out how we do that
0: well thank you very much for joining us
2: oh you're welcome Naomi it was fun
0: greg sando is a teacher consultant and writer a link to his blog at artsjournal.com can be found on our website wqxr.org Brian Wise is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.